Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to LSE for this evening's Department of, Department of Management public discussion. Uh, my name is Hyunjung Lee, uh, and I am Assistant Professor of Employment Relations and Organizational Behavior at the Department of Management, LSE. I am delighted to welcome Yasmin Diamond uh, to LSE. Uh, Yasmin, as many of you will know, uh, is Executive Vice President of Global Corporate Affairs of Intercontinental Hotels Group, also known as IHG. It's a real honor that Yasmin is able to be with us this evening and speak as part of LSE's Women in Business Lecture Series. And we very much look forward to the insights Yasmin will share from her impressive career spanning the government, private, and public sectors. Um, in her role, uh, Yasmin sits on the executive committee of the FTSE 100 listed company, uh, which owns the well-known brands Crown Plaza and Holiday Inn, where she heads up global communications. She has held a number of leadership positions in the UK government, including director of communications at the Home Office, and her work here was um, recognized with the Companion of the Order of the Bath in the 2011 New Year's Honours List. And before joining government communications, uh, Yasmin was publicity commissioner for the BBC. It is probably no coincidence that uh, given these high-profile roles, the skills Yasmin is most endorsed for on her LinkedIn profile is crisis and strategic communications. She has done her homework. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Tonight, uh, Yasmin will draw from her rich bank of work experiences to discuss female leadership, the gender pay gap, and good communications. But before I invite Yasmin to speak, I will say a few words on the format of the event. Yasmin and I will speak for about 40 minutes, and the idea is that um, it starts out as a conversation among us uh, on stage and very quickly becomes a conversation with you. Uh, and as usual, you will uh, have an opportunity to put your questions to Yasmin afterwards. For those of you who wish to take the discussion online, uh, the Twitter hashtag for today's event is, uh, it's here, right? Um, LSE Women In. And I would ask all of you to please put your phones on silent, uh, so not to disrupt the event. This evening's discussion is being recorded and will hopefully uh, be made available as a podcast Subject to, no, subject to no technical difficulties. But now, will you please join me in welcoming Yasmin Diamond to LSE. Okay, what strikes me about, uh, most about your career is that you've held senior leadership roles across a myriad of sectors. Tell me, how did those transitions come about? 
Um, firstly, thank you so much for coming. I know it's near Christmas and uh, you probably wanted to do Christmas shopping and someone's paid you to come here instead, so thank you uh, for coming and listening uh, for this evening. I hope it's going to be quite uh, interesting. I want to kick off by saying I'm not an expert, I'm not a theorist, I'm not an expert in gender and diversity, so everything I talk to you about this evening will be from quite a personal, um, the experiences that I've gone through. So, like a true communication professional, I won't answer the question. I'll answer a, di answer a different question. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it, maybe if I could just um, uh, build uh, uh, on, on what's just been said. Um, I have worked in many, many sectors, um, but it may just be interesting if I give you a little bit of colour about my background and how I kind of got into those um, sectors. So, I am a British Pakistani. Uh, my parents came from Pakistan in the 60s. Uh, we were um, all born here in this country. I'm from Bradford, as you can probably tell by my quite strong northern accent, which comes out even more when I speak to other northern people. And um, I grew up in a home which was um, very, very traditionally Pakistani um, in terms of what you wore, in the language that you spoke at home and the different language you spoke outside. And I started school not being able to speak English and learnt English in school. In fact, the school was called an immigrant centre. And uh, they stopped having immigrant centres, which was good, but it was basically to help kids learn English very, very quickly, quite an intense programme before you went into mainstream education. Um, and my father was a bus driver and my mum was the brains. And, uh, but she didn't work, so I didn't have any working role models in my life. She worked incredibly hard at home. She had seven kids, uh, five girls, two sons, kept trying for a son, had five girls, then tried for more sons. Um, and so my own role models, um, she was a huge role model for me because she was just so determined, and she was very determined to have equality in terms of the girls and the boys. Um, but none of the women in our family worked, in our extended family, and the jobs, if they did work, they would do something called peace work at home, which was sewing outfits that were ready cut, um, and you'd get paid X amount for each outfit. So my role models came from, shamefully, TV programmes. So I would watch those amazing lawyers in films, female lawyers, with amazing outfits and the cleverest brains. And I thought, I want to be like you. So it's quite interesting. Education in our family was hugely important. So I managed to be the first girl that went to university. Had to only go to university somewhere near where I lived because I couldn't live away from home. So I lived in Bradford and I went to Leeds University. Um, I have to say obviously apart from this illustrious establishment here, an amazing university, one of the best in the country. And, um, and then I started work. So it was not, it's not, um, for me, that's why diversity is broader than just gender or ethnicity. It's also about socioeconomic backgrounds and where someone comes from. Um, so that's kind of my early kind of uh, career in terms of me as an individual and where I might come from in certain things. And... Um, I started then work, and I've worked in some amazing uh, places. I, did, I started my career off in the arts, 
I worked in museums, museum kind of arts marketing, which was fantastic. Um, and I moved from there into the um, National Health Service. I always did communications roles and marketing roles. And from there I went into the BBC, which was one of the most fascinating organisations I've ever had the pleasure of working in. Um, and then from there I moved into Whitehall, where I had a 10-year love affair in Whitehall. I loved Whitehall, and I think Whitehall liked me and um, did, did some amazing things there and worked with some amazing people. And then from there I came to IHG. Um, and, you know, nice introduction there about IHG. Um, it is one of the most amazing companies I have ever had the pleasure of working in. Uh, hospitality is a wonderful industry anyway, but IHG has just got a wonderful feeling to it. I've been there now for five years, um, and it really is a very, very special place to, to, to work in. And it's a big global company. We're in 100 countries. Uh, and my, my role also covers uh, work in each of our big markets. So it's, you make the transition. But you, I kept my spine. My spine was communications. But I changed sectors because I like to learn about was new things. Was it more about you planned the transitions or it's just happened, the corporate sector? You see, I... I believe a little bit of it is luck, but a lot of it, honestly, is planning. You have to plan. You have to know where you want to be. And I'm a firm believer that you can't put your career in someone else's hands. We always have lucky breaks along the way, always. And I've had some of the most brilliant bosses I've worked for, men and women, and they've given you opportunities, and they've kind of taken a bit of a punt on you, they've taken a bit of risk on you, um, and that, that is part of that is luck and right place, right time. But you do have to plan your own career yourself and work out, you know, where would you like to be? What would you like to do? And also, what do you enjoy? I've always said, never, ever go for a job for a title or a promotion. Go for what you will actually find interesting. And the other things will probably follow if you find it interesting. If you've got passion about it, the other things will come. Because if you go for the title, you'll hate it and you'll spend a long time at work. I spend more time at work than I do in anything else in my life, including sleeping. So that would be a long time to be miserable. So go for something that interests you. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, the, one of the things is that this series, the lecture series uh, today is about women leadership. Um, especially the gender pay gap in the UK. It keeps making the headlines these days. Um, this was highlighted by the recent report from the BBC, um, and you've been there, uh, which found that, I have a record here, which found that men working for the corporation earn an average of 9.3% more than women. Uh, this spotlight on the BBC pay practices triggers a, a lot of awareness, uh, you know, both across public and pri- private sector organizations. So uh, having held senior positions uh, within the private and public sectors, now in the corporate sector, and including BBC, uh, what are your views on the um, gender pay gap that BBC report brought our attention to recently? And what are your thoughts or any recommendations uh, on ensuring women get promoted to senior positions? There's a lot in that question, isn't there? <laughs> um, I think probably the, there is a gender pay gap. Mm. 
I think that's factual, and different organisations will have different levels of it. I think what the debate from the BBC showed is actually uh, putting it out there as an issue and the transparency in terms of what it exposed. Um, I think for me, what the gender pay gap shows, it, 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 the most important thing is not just the fact that Yasmin gets paid less than her male you know, colleague who may be doing the same job. I think what it shows to me is that actually the most telling thing is that there are more men in senior positions and therefore you are bound to have a gender pay gap. There are more men that are higher up in organisations and therefore earning more money. Um, so there, it, there is. Um, and it's fundamentally a question of fairness. I have fairness quite core to my kind of values. And, um, and I think a lot of other people have. And nobody likes un- when it's not, some things are not fair. For any of you that have children, what's the first thing they say? It's not fair. So it's quite, an, it's quite a visceral thing is fairness for me. Um, the debate for um, the BBC, what it did was it was embarrassing for the BBC. But it kind of moved, the debate moved quite quickly. And I think in every organisation... Um, the government has said you've got to you know, publish your gender pay, your gender pay results. And um, it's a, ta- a ta- you know, time of the year, you take a snapshot, it could change next month, it could get worse, it could get better. The fundamental thing is you've got to acknowledge what it's showing you and acknowledge if there is a problem, whether it's a pay problem or whether it's a problem that you haven't got enough people going through the ranks into those senior positions. And for me, it's the latter bit that is really important, really, really important. Okay, so you just mentioned that the first step or one of the positive impact of the report is that awareness, increasing awareness. So that's the first step. Um, is it, do you have any thoughts or particular recommendations uh, from your observations to ensure women to promote the higher senior positions? I do believe you promote on merit. You always promote on merit. Um, but then that's also quite an easy cop-out, isn't it, saying, well, we had five candidates, so all men, and we promoted on merit. Or there was five candidates, two, two women, mm. and so the probability was the men you know, got the job. I think for me, um, having a diverse um, leadership team um, is imperative to a successful organisation. If you have all men or all women, the balance is is out. Um, You don't get the diversity of thinking. When I started in IHG, in my communication and corporate affairs function, I think we had two men out of 60-odd women. That balance wasn't right either. Um, I've got some of my colleagues in the audience here, you know, that wasn't right, it didn't work. And we've kind of corrected that balance. Communication often has more women in it than men, but we've kind of corrected that balance. Um, I think, so for IHG, so I can speak personally about what are we trying to do. If you look at our board, we have 40% women on our board, which is really good. We're in the top 10 um, in the, board. The, yeah, on the uh, uh, company board. If you look at our senior leaders group, which are the senior leaders in the, con- in the company, we currently have 37% of our senior leaders as women, which I think is really strong, particularly when you realise that five years ago, in 2012, we only had 
in those senior positions. Now, obviously, I would say this, that, you know, uh, it's an amazing company and we've done all these things. You know what? It's hard work and you have to really be at it. And I'm not going to make the link that I started in 2012 when we had 13%, and now we're up at 37 Nothing to do with me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it starts at the top. The CEO has to absolutely... It's not lip service. Um, we are a really, really diverse organisation. So for us, gender is only one thing that we've got as an issue. We have also got an issue in terms of, if you see in our China market or in some of our Asian markets, uh, in Middle East or in Singapore... For us, it's not just gender. It's also the issue of how do you get local talent into the senior roles so you don't just have an expat community that are shipped into those roles. So for diversity for us is quite broad. Um, On the female side, we've got mentoring programmes and every company will say they've got mentoring programmes. We've actually identified our top talent, men and women, And we assign an executive team member to mentor every single one of those individuals, men and women. And there's quite clear kind of paths through. We also have a future leaders program. And the future leaders program is very much tailored at the hotel leadership level. So you you all know hotels. You have general managers, assistant general managers, head of sales, head of the restaurants and bars. So we have this future leaders program, which is also aimed at um, a two years, a graduate program to get people experiencing a whole range of jobs within a hotel to then kind of work their way up quite accelerated into the more senior roles. And, you know, we're seeing some really, really positive results. In Europe this year, we had eight female future leaders and nine male future leaders, so a really good balance there. It's a very coveted programme to get on. This is not an easy programme to get on to. Very, very high standards. So we're really trying to push some of those boundaries. Um, In the US... We have a whole range of things in place, um, and some of those are not on gender. In the U.S., there's diversity, is on LGBT issues. There's some quite broad issues that, as a company, you have to think about in the round. Um, China is a really, really interesting market for us. It's our fastest-growing market for the company. The biggest market we have is the U.S., the Americas. China is our fastest-growing market. And China has just accelerated in, you know, and many of you, you know, have been studying China. It's accelerated in so many different ways. But for us as a hotel company, we are, I think, still the largest hotel company in China. We went in there in the, about 30-odd years ago. And um, the acceleration of growth is so phenomenal that we need talent. And what a shame it would be if we only looked at talent from one gender. So we try to look at it much more broadly. So we have some really tailored programs in China because we want to get people working in hotels. Now, there is a huge challenge. In China, with the one-child policy, you want your child to be a doctor, a businessman, an accountant, a lawyer, you name it. You may not want them to go into hospitality. So you have to try, we have to try doubly hard to kind of get those pipelines. And we've had some really, really strong um, results in China now. In our corporate office, over 46% female. And in the general manager community, around about 18%. 
Now, let me just talk to you about that general manager community. All of you stayed in hotels, haven't you? Do you always arrive at a hotel at 9 o'clock in the morning? You can arrive at midnight, 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Hotel general manager jobs are very, very difficult. They, in, they have to deal with all of us. They have to deal with humans on a daily basis and all personalities and all forms of life. It's also incredibly difficult in terms of social hours that you keep. Very, very long uh, days, nighttime working, shift working. So we fundamentally start with a challenge in terms of getting that pipeline. So for us, it's a really big focus about what we can do to try to get women through into the general manager pipeline. And we're up to around about 25% now of general managers um, who are female, which is really strong compared to the amount of energy and time it takes to get people through. Getting to general manager is a difficult job. Mm-hmm. It's also a huge amount of experience that you've got to you know, get people through. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the different brands that we have. If you're a general manager of a Holiday Inn Express, is a slightly different general manager to a 500-room intercontinental um, in Park Lane. Um, so different kind of skill set. We're lucky with the breadth of brands that we've got and the different kinds of skills that we need that we can really use that as a good training ground for our general managers. Mm, thank you. So uh, you pointed out that it has to start at the top. Yeah. So if you are lucky uh, to be in a company that's, that's very at the top, they're aware of it and they do something about it, then you're lucky. But if it's not... Um, there is a lot of structural uh, societal level pressure. So one of them being um, sort of female quota system. Right? That's a very controversial system, whether or not that has a, has a positive impact on us. So what are your views about having some outside pressure for the companies who, unfortunately, the top doesn't really do things for uh, gender equality? What's your view? I think what quotas do, they put the spotlight on things, don't they? Um, They always put the spotlight on it. You name and shame. Mm -hmm. So you're the bad guys, you're the good guys. Get it all out there. You get loads of media coverage, good coverage and bad coverage. And then, you know what, let's be honest, it ends. Mm -hmm. And what quotas do, along with a whole range of things, which societal changes as well, is it puts a spotlight on something that shows broader (laughs) society... What, what society thinks is important or what governments think is important. Um, and so quotas have a place. They have a place. I don't think they're the magic bullet. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like a jigsaw. There's lots of different parts and things that you have to do to try to move this agenda forward. There's not one thing that you can do and say, that's it, job done, we've moved on. The other thing is, it's not a point in time. So you can all pat yourself on the back. I can pat myself on the back and say, I do really well with my own team. I'm really diverse. Um, two people leave in your leadership team and you're recruiting to them and you, you, you have a different mix. So in a very quick period of time, your mix can change. Mm-hmm. And so you can't go out there recruiting saying, right, okay, I have to now make sure that's a female, that's a man, this is that, this is that. Your mindset has got to be, where's my diversity in terms of thinking? And you start from there. So, you know, quotas have a place. I'm not a massive fan of quotas, if I'm honest with you. I think they have a place. Um, But I think it's a culture that you build within your Mm organisation. And, by the way, all of us women and men, I don't want to leave the men out, 
I said earlier on, I'm not here to man-bash. I'm not a man-basher, by the way. Um, I think it's really important for men uh, to also think of this and think about the diversity of thinking in their team, guys. I'm not talking about women and men. I'm talking about diversity of thinking. You will not get diversity of thinking if you all look and think alike. And that is the same for women. And uh, in so many different societies where um, I think we're very lucky at IHG because we are a global company you genuinely can look at things in different ways one of the things that really brought it home to me was um, reading some stuff around about six months ago and it was a head teacher of one of the most successful independent schools in this country and probably in the world who said I'm throwing out amazing women competent Top 5% in the country. The, the brains are the size of Britain. They're flawless. They're brilliant academically. They're brilliant in music and sports and drama, you name it. And then they get into the workplace, and they don't like it and they don't fit, um, particularly in the city and in certain kind of industries. So she had a very clever idea. She spoke to their fathers. Their fathers were the chief execs of these big firms in the cities. And those fathers have then started to think that I don't want my daughter to come into a workplace feeling that there is a glass ceiling or that these things aren't doable. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the kinds of things that we, all the women who work in organisations, can change your mindset, the mentoring schemes, the leaning circles, etc. But you know what? Fundamentally, a company themselves has got to take some responsibility for the things that they want to put in place to ensure equality and diversity because they're not, I don't think you can be really successful as a company if you've not got a diverse workforce. And in a company like ours, we serve the world, so we can't have colleagues that don't look like the world. Thank you. Um, it is very insightful that what you said fundamentally is that, okay, there are a lot of things it can influence gender equality in the uh, corporate sector, uh, but one of the things is culture change, fundamentally. But that's really difficult to do, yeah? culture change. And uh, what's very interesting, what you said, is having a man on board, like your fathers, you know, uh, uncles or whoever in this city, chief executives, men on board, and they start from there. That's uh, very interesting. Um, and now let's shift to the focus, what you just said about the culture in the corporations. Um, so there is a lot of research in the academic field as well that um, men and women are different. Probably half of you in the audience disagree with that. Men and women are not different. So this is not an easy issue. It is a thorny uh, issue to discuss. Um, starting from there is no such a thing as a gender differences whatsoever, but there is a biases. So that's one, one view. Um, that relates to the culture, the working culture, corporate culture that doesn't support uh, women. Uh, on the other hand, there is a, uh, another way of looking at this gender differences. Uh, men and women are different, and they work better under certain circumstances. Um, the one of the things, including recent report, is that um, the corporations, corporate executive board with more women in, uh, in figure, have a general positive effect. 
um, including stock market return. And uh, one of the things highlighted was corporate social responsibility and less corruption and more uh, a better working environment and including stock market return. So the, one of the things could be that uh, if corporations are aware of it, so-called making a business case is one thing. Um, so, but still, a lot of uh, people struggle the how we actually change this uh, uh, work environment, corporate environment that is predominantly male-friendly in a way. So what are your observations reflecting uh, on your own experiences? Did you also uh, observe that men and women in senior positions uh, are different, or do you not think they are actually different? Well, I'm looking out on this audience. As individuals, we are all different, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, I am not like a man. And many men are not like me. I think women and men are different, and that's fine. I look more at skill sets and attributes more than anything else. And um, culture is really, really difficult to change, and it often takes decades, and it can be broken very quickly by certain things that can happen, like a trauma happening in the markets that can change a company's you know, perspective on things. Um, a couple of things for me um, which maybe a little bit controversial in terms of culture, is you have to look at your own organisation, and there are definitely things that you have to put in place. When I first started um, work, I always worked with for amazing bosses, uh, both men and women, and I've worked for some amazing women bosses. And I was very fortunate that the ones who I reported directly into were you know, strong women, very fair. But I also saw other leaders in our business who were women, and they were the women that I always said, I never, ever want to be like you, that you do not represent me. And those are the women who, when they'd got to a senior position, they pulled the ladder beneath them. And they weren't happy to kind of give a helping hand to men or women, if I'm honest with you, but they probably ruined lots of careers, not just female careers. Um, and that's, that is something I think I've seen changing quite a lot, lot in the workplace. Because if you are a woman in a senior role, it is imperative on you, and I think it's an obligation on you, to ensure that you kind of have that mindset. The other thing which is now slightly controversial is you as an organisation don't operate in a vacuum. So if you don't get good service in a shop, you probably won't go back to that shop, will you? You kind of go, you know what, I didn't quite like that surly service. I've also looked at our organisation and said, we need to look at the advisors that advise our companies. So when you go out, some of you are probably working already, but when you go out into the big world to work, your companies will have lawyers, lawyer firms, communications firms, headhunting firms, auditing firms, consultancy firms. You know, it's imperative for companies to also ask their advisors around the issue of diversity of thinking and the kinds of people they put on your account. Now, I've got friends who work in the big consultancy firms, and they say, you know, loads of companies don't say this to us. We probably would do something or start looking at this as an issue, but I think it's really important. You know, headhunters, for example, have a huge job to do to ensure that the 
short lists and long lists they're putting through into corporations are diverse, and it's not through the no, it's not just the normal pool that people go fishing in. So there's a loads of different way you can do culture. So it's not always as frightening as saying we've got to do it all ourselves in our own company. You know, you don't operate in a vacuum. We operate in a broad like world out there and there's a lot of external companies that you do business with that you work with that advise you and I think asking the question of them um, is equally as important about asking the question for your, about yourself mm -hmm. um, can, I, can I then conclude that uh, from your observations uh, it's not about men and women they're different in the senior roles uh, there are more diversity, different strands of diversity there. So it's we, it's men and women maybe, but not every woman are exactly the same. So you're, you're fundamentally saying there isn't systematic differences you observe along, along your career, that men and women actually are different in senior roles? Uh, I think, I think yeah. people are different. I think you can't put people into boxes. And so I don't, you know, I don't, I didn't ever subscribe to those, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus or the other way around, I can't remember now. But people are different. And yes, there are certain traits that have been proven to be more feminine, female traits, and other traits are more male traits. The important thing for me, though, is it comes back to things around unconscious bias. Unconscious bias isn't deliberate. By the very nature of it, it's unconscious. You don't know that you're doing it. And by the way, we all have it. We all have unconscious bias. If I see a screaming child, I have an immediate reaction that goes, if that was my child, I would do. Um, and we, by the way, you know, unconscious bias always exists in all of us. The important thing is to recognise it. And when you recognise it, then what are you going to do about it? And the found and a colleague of mine and a friend of mine gave me an example, a brilliant example, um, which was the US and American orchestras in the 1970s. Some of you may know um, about the profile of American orchestras. The top five orchestras in America in the 70s had 5% of women. In the music schools, the graduates from the music schools, the percentages were much more equal that was coming out of grad schools. And it wasn't until the 1980s that they managed to climb to 10% of orchestras. So they had a look at this and thought, this is not, we know there's something wrong here. What, what can we do? What kind of things can we put in place? to try to make this a little bit, to, to change the face of these orchestras. So they didn't say, look, we're not going to have the trombone and all the instruments that traditionally the men play. We'll change all the instruments to instruments that women play. They actually looked at the orchestra and they started doing things like blind auditions. So they did auditions um, behind screens. So you couldn't tell who it was. They started that and they realised that the women that were coming on <laughs> so they then said take the shoes off so we'll do purely blind, blind auditions and they have completely transformed the makeup of um, US orchestras they now have 
in, I think in 1997, so this is old data, now even more, 25%, some of them over 30%. So it's not, they, obviously there was a bias, but it was unconscious. When they realized it, you know, trying to do something. Um, I've introduced some of that from the early part of my career. All of you, when you're going out into the big wide world, will go and do your interviews, and you'd all do an amazing communication selling job on yourself. It'd be really foolish not to do that. How do I get underneath the fact that you, know, you are amazing and you're the best thing since sliced bread, and how do I believe everything you're saying when you tell me you're amazing and you're the best thing since sliced bread? And it was one of the first jobs I did. Um, the uh, organization I went to work for, was, it was Bradford Health Authority, and uh, a wonderful woman who's now one of my dearest friends interviewed me. She interviewed me. She was three months pregnant, and nobody knew that she was pregnant. So when she was interviewing for uh, her uh, deputy marketing manager, she was also interviewing for somebody that she thought could cover her maternity leave, um, but she didn't tell anybody. So anyway, part of the interview process was a desktop exercise where you had a big in-tray, and you had to go through it and say, what would you do? I didn't know this company at all. Obviously, I'd done my research. Um, how to do it. And it was brilliant because she said it immediately showed the people who could actually do something and the people who couldn't. And so I thought, you know what? This is brilliant. So in most of the jobs that we have, we make people do a test. It's often a blind test before interview. You know, in communications, you've got to be able to write and you've got to be able to marshal an argument. So you may be very, very articulate, but if you can't marshal that argument in written form or other forms, so we make people do written tests. We also say to people, here's a problem. Um, here's an issue. I did it throughout my whole career in Whitehall. We'd say, a minister wants X, Y, Z, wants it by tomorrow. These are the big environmental issues. What, what advice would you give? And I can tell you, the people who interview really well a lot of them do really badly on those tests. Mm. They're very good at interviews. They don't get the job. But if I didn't do that other part of the test, they'd, they'd get the job. Mm. So this whole thing of, and if you do that yourself, we have all got it in us to do these things. We don't have to always follow the rules. I'm sure my HR department, when I did it in Whitehall, probably thought that you know, you're breaking some rule by doing that. But you have to be able to look at things with, with, without the colour. You've got to be colourblind mm -hmm. in that respect. Just not look at it through any form of bias. But by the way, we all, all have bias. Mm -hmm. There's a big thing in terms of language. Um, the way you say something or what you say means very, very different things in different languages. And even within, say, the European Union, things mean very, very different. I've got some brilliant examples for you. I did actually do some homework for this presentation. So I've got some great examples for you. So English really is an amazing language. There's lots of double, triple, and quadruple meanings for things. And I, I, you know, I, admire, those, I admire people who English is not the first language that can master the English language because it's so hard. But... Language, again, culturally, is very, very interesting. So if I say, that's interesting, what do I mean? Go on, what do I mean if I say, that's interesting? I'll tell you what I really mean. That's complete nonsense. <laughs> complete nonsense. But what the 
if, if you're from certain cultures, what you hear when I say, that's interesting, she's interesting. Yeah, I, oh, God, I, I could do a bit more of this. Um, if I said, I'm a bit disappointed in that, which is something I use with my children quite a lot, I'm a bit disappointed in that, what do I mean? I'm furious. <laughs> I'm absolutely furious, and I actually want to scream, but I'm trying to be really professional. And I'm just saying I'm disappointed. What do you hear? It really doesn't matter. She's not that fussed. There's really different meanings. And my all-time favourite is from my life in Whitehall. That's the brave decision. <laughs> That's completely bonkers. I don't know why they want to go there. What the minister hears? Oh, I could make my name if I did that. I'd be doing something quite transformation. And number 10 might be beckoning. So language plays a huge part in it. And I know I'm chopping and changing here, but for me, um, there are so, it's, it's so rich, this area. There's so many different things. And there's one thing you asked me earlier, and I didn't give another example, which was culture. Uh -huh. So in this audience, if I said to some of you, um, we're going to have a new policy, you can do agile working, you can work from home, most of you would jump at the chance, wouldn't you? be like, great. It'll be flexibility, blah, blah. And, and, and that's fine. There's a lot of people that wouldn't, but there are a lot of people that would. In the, in, in the UK, Europe, and America, that works really, really well. You go to the Asian, into the Asian markets, they don't want agile working. If you're in China and you're an only child, you come to work because that's where all your friends are, and you like that interaction with people, and you don't want to go work from home. If you're in Singapore and your flats, very, very expensive. Any of you know Singapore? It is extortionately expensive to live in Singapore. It's a tiny island and the flats are small. You don't want to work from home. And if you're in India, you want to get away from your mother-in-law, so you definitely don't want to work from home. <laughs> so you want to do agile working in a global company, you've got to do it in different ways. And just saying there's a blanket rule on agile working so you can all work from home... In some, you have to understand, you know, I have friends who are Pakistani and Indian who genuinely would rather do anything than work from home because they want to get away from the people at home. I know many mothers that do that the same. They don't want to work from home. So there's, culture, is, yeah. culture to me is really important. Fantastic. I did say uh, earlier that it is interesting. <laughs> So, um, so every policy must reflect on the context. Yes. So that's one of the, um, the messages. Um, it's, now you already mentioned about the communication and how you select uh, communication professionals by very diverse so the repertoire of uh, selections. Um, that's quite resonating. So not just interviews, you know, so people can practice interviews. Even, even uh, my daughter who is preparing for the exam, there's interview tutoring. Yes. Right? So it's a, you can learn how to do interview in school. So uh, it's a tutor-proof, diverse set of a selection process. That's what you emphasize. Fantastic. Now we uh, uh, reflect on um, what you said about communications. We know that communications play an important role. Um, and that, that is a really important role in propelling individuals to senior positions. 
um, being a professional in a communication, um, what makes a good communicator, first of all? And secondly, there's a lot of uh, coaching around here, and uh, especially for women, oh, you should do non-verbally this way and take a position, you know, space, and you, know, you, you need to show that you're confident, uh, including power pose these days. So um, should men and women approach communication differently? Or comments? Communications is a core leadership skill. Mm. It's not a skill that just sits in my function. I have to be able to communicate with people, and communications is about marshalling arguments and, uh, you know, and, and, and really um, engaging and uh, being very authentic. And so you don't need a whole set of speaking points and you know, things given to you. You have to be able to, to, be able to, to, just to, be able to do that as part of leadership. Um, the biggest part for me in terms of communications, um, so actually before I go there, in terms of your second part of your question, you know, what kind of tips and things that people give you in terms of um, interview techniques and stuff. I've got curly hair. I have always had curly hair. When I was a child, I wished I didn't have curly hair, and I used to comb it, and it used to go even bigger, Okay. I'm now very happy I've got curly hair because it's mine. I could straighten it now. I never want to. I also wear red lipstick. And I dress quite feminine. I also uh, am virtually blind as a bat, so I wear contact lenses, but I also wear glasses. About ten years ago, I was going for very, very, my first director role in Whitehall. And a very experienced headhunter, a female headhunter, gave me a piece of advice. First piece of advice was very good. Slow down your speech, because I do speak very, very quickly. That was very good advice. I thought, oh, this is great. Great, write it down. Second piece of advice is, do you wear glasses? Or, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I wear contact lenses and I can wear glasses. You should put your glasses on for the interview. I was thinking, I know where this is going and I don't like it. The third point was, you should tie your hair back. Because it'll make, with your glasses and your hair tied back, it'll just make you look really professional. And I have to say, I was really shocked because I had always believed that you can be yourself and you don't have to change yourself to get a job. So I said, Do you know what? If they want somebody who doesn't have curly hair, wears glasses, and doesn't wear red lipstick, I don't really want to work for them. So I didn't. I kept my hair down. I didn't put my glasses on, put my contact lens, wore my red lipstick, and I got the job. So take advice that people give you with a pinch of salt because you've got to, you've got to triangulate that advice for yourself and for your own personality. Um, big part of communications is listening. You really have to listen uh, to other people. That, and in terms of leadership communications, that is incredibly important. The other thing for me is um, what you say in leadership communications, um, virtually every word is scrutinized. But people want you to be authentic. The worst you can be is scripted within an inch of your life, um, 
you've got to be able to talk to your colleagues, to your teams, to motivate them, to tell them off when you need to tell them off, etc. But it's got to be very authentic and it comes very, very much from you. Uh, not that someone's written a script for you, because you know what? We all know that. We can see it, can't we? You know straight away that's not their, that's not their voice. Um, there are three traits in communications that I are, and are attributes that I think make amazing communicators, whether it be communicators like my colleagues who work in communicators, communications or broader you know, communications in terms of a leadership trait. The first one is have an insatiable and unquestionable and innate curiosity. Ask questions. If you want to be interesting, you've got to be interested in something. Read. Get behind what you first see. Get behind the headline, get behind the story, whatever it might be. It is so important. And what I look for when we're recruited to communications, we look for the attribute of whether you've got curiosity. Almost childlike curiosity, the why question. For any of you who've got kids, you get sick of that question. But you never want to dampen it because when they're asking why, they're learning more, they're, they're just constantly building. And also, if you are um, in today's society and in today's world... You've got the whole thing about fake news and all of that kind of stuff. Well, how do you know what's fake and what's not fake if you are not getting behind something? So be the person who sees the tweet and do you just stick to the 140 characters and go, yeah, I've got my news or I believe that or I don't believe that, I disagree or I agree? Or do you kind of go, I'll click into that and find out a bit more. Oh, I might read the summary of the report that that's talking about to read a bit more. So for, community, for that skill, the curiosity of getting behind and underneath things, basically, be really nosy. Be really, really nosy. And if you're really, really nosy, you ask questions, you get under the skin, and it's a very, very good trait. The second thing for a great communicator is storytelling. You have to be able to tell a story. And that's, again, not just from you know, communications professionals. You as individuals, you in leadership roles, have to be able to bring something to life via storytelling. Because you know what? Who remembers facts? You remember an image, a photograph, a story that kind of illustrates that. They bring it to life. Um, I, there's a stat. Well, I'm going to throw a stat at you, and I just said nobody remembers a stat. Um, twi- uh, stories are 22 times more memorable than stats. 22 times more memorable. And the one I'm going to give you an example of is, do you remember a few years ago uh, when the Syrian crisis first started and we had, you know, people just desperately leaving Syria, making horrendous journeys across multiple countries to get to Europe. And there was a massive um, sort of anti-taking in refugees and into European countries, etc. There was a big discussion, not just in the UK, but across the whole of Europe about Syrian refugees. 
And do you remember that awful picture of that little child? You're all nodding because you all saw it. And it changed the whole debate in Europe. Every politician was talking, not about that picture, but they were all talking about we should be able to take refugee quotas. Nobody listened to them. That one hideous picture changed. Angela Merkel took in quotas, Britain, every country. It was a picture because it showed humanity. So that great communicators can see stories. They can see stories and they know how to bring that story to life. And in leadership roles, that's the majority of your job, is to be able to bring those stories to life for people. And then finally, and my favourite one, is a good communicator's got to have fantastic judgment. And judgment, a lot of judgment is learnt, it's on the job, but a lot of judgment is also innate. Judgment makes or breaks a career. As a very, very fortunate to work in Whitehall, very, very fortunate to work with some very, very powerful and amazing women. I worked for four brilliant secretaries of state and ministers. I worked for Tessa Jow, I worked for Margaret Beckett, I worked for Jackie Smith, and I worked for Theresa May. Very powerful and brilliant, all in their own way. In, a, in an environment that is very challenging, Whitehall for women, particularly in politics, is a challenging environment and, and, and challenging for women. And you know, you're advising them, you're giving advice. My last job in the Home Office, um, you're also dealing with some not very nice issues, whether it be around counter-terrorism, immigration, crime, you name it. And you hone your judgment and you have to speak truth to power. And truth to power is a very, very important issue in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. So that, why I'm raising it is within organisation, it's imperative for people to, and, and, and the men and women, this is not just a female issue, to be able to call things out. And if you don't feel as the environment is there to call it out, that, I think, is quite bad. So judgment, for me, is one of the most critical things in terms of leadership. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for your insights. Um, we will now open the floor to questions to Yasmin. Um, if you can raise your hand, uh, then let us know who you are, where you're from, affiliation, and there are stewards with a microphone who, who will get to you. Okay, the, uh, the person at the back first, yes. Hi, thank you very much. Apologies for coming in a bit late. Um, I, will, you, will you tell us who you are? Yes, and I'm, I'm about to. Uh, my name is Victoria Holdsworth. I was formerly in a senior communications role in an intergovernmental organization. Um, I now um, do consulting work. Um, one thing that struck me, I mean, you've worked in government and you spoke about your fortunate experiences, um, has been, I think, uh, a sense, and it, it took me a long time to, to write something about this, and it was, um, I think I wrote that, that we are, workplaces are designed by fathers for our brothers, um, in a sense that we're operating in a structure that's defined 
by, by men historically, with, whether you like it or not, it is a fact. Um, so it's not just about fitting into that culture uh, or even trying to change it a bit. It's, it's a bigger structural issue, I think, than um, perhaps even... I mean, changing boards is important, um, changing leadership what you said about um, representation across different cultures, across different sexes, is, is very resonant. Um, but it's about almost unseating that way of management and way of working which filters um, people in the workplace. And often women are disadvantaged because of that and, and continue to be. And I, I've got two young well, not young daughters, they're sort of, uh, both at university now. But I can see it already, that they're starting to filter. And, and so I think it's a lot bigger that, than just challenging on a, um, an operational level. I think it's a lot more structural, uh, and I'd be interested to hear your views on that. I like your phrase, in workplaces uh, were designed by men for their sons. I think that's probably right, um, because many of them were. I do think it's changing, and you've just, like I said earlier on, it's a, to try to move this, it's like a jigsaw, there's lots of different things you have to do, and you can't just say, if we do that thing, that's going to be this bullet that just goes, yes, we've sorted the world's problems out. Um, it's, it's interesting, because, I mean, I've got a son and a daughter. My daughter's older. And I push her to say, you can be whatever you want to be. I also say that to my son. And I think he probably thinks he can anyway. <laughs> Genuinely. I think she's probably more confident than him, but he probably thinks he can. What I'm trying to get to is, I, f I fundamentally think, you know, men and women, you know, we're all individuals, we're all people, and people are different. Um, we do now have, um, I talk for my company, more women in senior roles, and I think that is, that is changing the way you do certain things. Um, I think it's also, there are a number of industries, and you, we talked earlier on about FTSE you know, 100, there's still not an amazing representation at the very top, like at the, at the kind of CEO level. Um, but women can also, within an organisation, change the way we do things. And I think that is also important because um, we can't just... Um, I don't personally believe in absolving, just like I don't believe in absolving the responsibility for careers onto other people. I don't think when you work in an organisation, you know you're part of that organisation. You should be able to you know, make changes in the way that you do things. Um, and, and I also think you've got to take a few risks. Now, we've all probably had times in our careers when someone's taken a risk on us and you've, you've also got to take a risk. So another little story. I, um, when I was in Whitehall, I was Director of Communications of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And um, the job at the Home Office came up, which was my dream job. It's a job I always wanted. I was seven months pregnant. And the first thing I thought was, I swore but I won't swear now because it's going to go out on podcast. So I went, oh, mm, bleep. Um, what terrible timing. And I was really upset. I was really upset, and I cried. And then I thought, well, 
I only have six months maternity leave with Sophia. I could have six months maternity leave with the next child and da-da-da-da. And the process takes forever anyway, and before you know it, I'll be back. So I bit the bullet and I applied for the job, and everybody was astonished. You know what? They gave me the job. But they took a risk on me and I took a risk on myself because what I promised them was I would come back in six months. I didn't know how I might have felt after I had the baby. So sometimes you have to take a risk, they have to take a risk, but all of us women who work in organisations, we have to be able to push some of those boundaries ourselves and we have to be able to have a voice. Now, it's sometimes easy to have a voice if there's more people like you it's sometimes really hard. It's quite lonely. I've been in times when I am the lone voice and you've got to bite the bullet and think, I'm still going to have to put my hand up and be the, the truth unto power. You know, say something that nobody else wants to say. Um, it's not easy, but I do love your phrase of the, the workplace was created by fathers for their sons and I, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. But I, I'm an optimist and a glass half full and I think it's changing. <laughs> okay, next question. Anyone? Oh, okay. Hi, hello, my name is Catherine Xiang. I work here at LSE. I teach Chinese language and intercultural communication. So really just quick comment about what you said about language and culture, completely agree. So my question, you kind of touch upon a little bit on that. So some kind of study suggested women don't get a promotion, don't get a job or that paycheck is because women don't ask. So my question would be, would you actually agree with that? Women should ask. And if that is the case, when and how to ask? Thank you. Okay. From personal experience, I fear that it's true. The number of times that... um, So, you know, I've been on the receiving end of trying to negotiate a package, which I have to say I'm really bad at, and I've also been on the other end of negotiating a package with other people. The hardest conversations I have are with men. And I'm talking here purely from a personal perspective, what I've experienced. Um, The women never, ever, ever come in and ask you. And if they do, they're embarrassed. And again, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not generalizing. That's purely personally. The number of times I am coaching my friends and um, family for when they're you know, negotiating a, you know, a new contract or a new, you know, going for a job and what they should ask for, what they haven't. And it's a skill set and it's a muscle that really I just don't think we've developed in the same way. And I'm great at advising other women and my, you know, other, my friends and family, I'm brilliant at it. You need to go for this, and this is how you negotiate, and you start there, and you do this, and you do the other. And then it comes to yourself, and you kind of get... I get embarrassed. Now, I don't know if that's a female trait or not. I'm talking purely personally here. It's the experience I have personally had that my harder conversations around pay and all that kind of stuff actually are with some of my male colleagues that I've worked with throughout my whole career. Okay. Could you do the person in the middle? Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, hi, my name's Catherine Ellis. Um, I'm also formerly from an intergovernmental organisation, but my career actually includes private sector and not-for-profit and government, so a bit of a mix. Um, and just actually on the last question, there is some research from Harvard that shows that women actually are substantially disadvantaged when they try to negotiate salaries. And the, the recommendations are that 
you should either use the advocacy of some other person, a senior person, preferably a man, who has advised that you should be asking for more, therefore it's not coming from you, it's coming from somebody else, even though it's through your mouth, or that you portray it in the sense that it's good for the community, good for the organisation, that you're paid more for some reason. Anyway, it's an aside. Just on that, though, the gender pay thing is then important because um, gender pay has become an issue. Organisations, you know, it's imperative for organisations to look at the actual facts of their gender pay. Um, It shouldn't always have to be the individual coming to say... I think there's some disparity. I'd like, I think my package isn't right. I also think it's imperative for an organisation to say, I have a problem here, or I've had a problem in this part of my organisation, and what are we going to do? So it's a bit of both. I would agree. And in fact, yeah. the, most, the easiest negotiation I've ever had as a boss was when a female staff member came to me with the evidence to show that she was being underpaid, and it was very easy to say, of course, we'll, we'll fix that. Um, My question is around the unconscious bias that you were mentioning before, and you were talking about it very much from a recruiter's point of view, but not so much from a candidate's point of view. And I know in my career, you know, at university, I went to a private girls' school, so all the leadership positions were held by girls. When I was at university, it was very equal. And I thought that's the way the world was. And then I hit the workforce, and I suddenly discovered even my male peers were taking a lead from the older men in the organisation and becoming discriminatory, and, and there was a bias immediately. Um, but I was lucky enough to find sponsors in senior management, again, mostly men who looked after me and my career, and I was seen as a bright young thing for a while, so that helped. Um, but then I found as I got more senior, that becomes less and less, and I think it's partly because you're then seen more as competition. Um, there's, there's less sort of willingness from older men to support the bright young thing. Um, but where my question is, now I'm finding in senior, going for senior roles, there's a very much a sort of a bias around what does a leader look like? What does a CEO look like? And if you are female, if you look younger than you really are, um, if perhaps your mannerisms don't have the gravitas that they think that a CEO should necessarily have, even if that means that you're much better at engaging with staff, with your client base, etc., those things can all penalise you. That's what I'm finding. So I'm interested in your perspectives on how to deal with that situation, particularly when, let's face it, most of the recruitment decisions into senior roles are made by older white men who sit on the boards or who are the senior leaders of the organisations. Well, I wouldn't give you the advice of uh, putting on your glasses and tying your hair back. (laughs) I probably wouldn't give that advice. Um, Look, it's a really interesting one. Unconscious bias isn't deliberate. I, I said that earlier. By the very nature, it's unconscious, yeah? And we all have it. I tell you what things like this, you know, gender pay gap or quotas and all that kind of thing, what they do is, or what they are doing already, I think, maybe it needs to be accelerated, is forcing boards to address it. And that's the first step. So which chairman wants to get up and say, oh, we failed our X percentage of women on boards and then be named and shamed? They don't actually want to be named and shamed with their other board chairman peers. So the first step, I think, is for boards to um, recognise it and discuss it and have that discussion within the boardroom. I would be absolutely astonished about any FTSE 100 company that hasn't had that discussion in their boardroom. 
because so that's why gender pay and quotas they're part of the jigsaw they're not the full answer but they're forcing the conversation and they're then forcing um, a little bit of internal transparency even if not external transparency so let's get data points you know what is the situation in our organization what are the facts what is hearsay what is perception and start looking at it um, you're not going to change that overnight and do you remember when we had the 2008-2009 um, financial crash and there was a lot of talk at the time which is you know, if we had more women in these boardrooms would we have been in those, situ you know, would we have been in those situations and we need to kind of do something about it um, all of those things, where, where they take us is to have that subject out there and to be, be discussing it at the right levels. And then one would hope that having exposed it, discussed it, then things start happening. Your point is very, very well made. That takes time. Um, I think for IHG, we're lucky. We've got 40% of our board are female. A uh, very diverse board, global company from we've got Americas, Hong Kong, you name it, very, very uh, broad. Um, so you genuinely have brilliant diversity of thinking on that board. So uh, maybe we are thinking about these things quite a lot because of the fact that we've got a board, but I think as a company, um, you, I don't think nowadays you cannot think about it. The problem is do you think about it, intellectualize it, do a bit more thinking, go get a bit more data, go back, intellectualise it, think about it, or do you actually at any point move it to action? And maybe there is a lag between the kind of awareness and talking about it and then the action. And I think it will take time. Oh, yes, please, can I have a question from a man? <laughs> Hi. Hi, my name is Laurent Labashadier. I work in investment management. Uh, thank you for your um, uh, sort of outline of how you think about communications. I was wondering if you could talk about how you adapt that to crisis situations, particularly thinking about your experience in the public sector. I'm sure you've seen many situations where you've had to respond very quickly to situations, and I'm really interested to uh, hear how you would do that. Thank you. Um, judgment is at the core. Judgment and speed are at the core of that. And... Um, you know, in, when I worked in Whitehall, you do deal with a lot of crisis. We used to, you know, wake up every morning and the top three stories on the Today programme, the top three stories in, in all the media were home office stories. If it wasn't, you know, asylum applications that we'd lost, um, if it was, you know, uh, some counter-terrorism issues or control orders, it, it, it very, very broad. And I was also in Whitehall when um, we had the MPs' expenses um, and all, all that. So there was there were a whole array of things that you deal with. Um, and in a crisis situation, the really important thing is to um, have very, very clear lines of accountability and decision-making. And it's incredibly important in any crisis situation to be, have a very clear owner of that crisis and then the lines of accountability. The second thing is being able to very quickly assimilate information, facts, what's happening, and to be able to respond uh, and not be so dogmatic and, and get yourself into a corner and put yourself in a box. Um, the third thing is judgment, judgment, judgment. It's all about judgment. And you make judgment calls on minute-by-minute minute basis in a crisis, and it's just the way it is. 
you always have to think and be one step ahead of your crisis. And I know that sounds odd, but you have to think about where this is going. And when you work back from where this is going, you then may change the action you're going to take now because it might have an unintended consequence that you don't want to handle down the road. Um, and crises come in all shapes and forms. There can be crises in terms of company reputations. There can be crises in terms of legal, you know, you poison somebody. There can be crises in terms of, you know, some of the terrible kind of bomb and terrorist attacks that we've had in London. Um, preparation is everything, and having a fantastic team around you. Always recruit people who want your job. Always recruit people who are snapping at your heels, because they're, they're the future, and they will be brilliant, because they want your job. But crisis, by the way, it's a massive adrenaline rush. A massive adrenaline rush. And there's, in a crisis, there are no... You can't carry people in a crisis. And in a crisis, and that's why I make people do those little tests for me when I interview, is you give them time limited and you have to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you can't have any passengers in a crisis. And it absolutely shows um, different kinds of behaviour. And you have to be able to absorb pressure. And you also have to be able to absorb very bad behaviour. Because a crisis is the time when the shouting, the the tension, the pressure gets at very, very boiling point and it's how do you handle that and how do you bring that back down to just trying to neutralise it and deal with the issue. And in a lot of places you're dealing with um, live issues uh, with a lot of public scrutiny. And in government, every, you know, you can't always do... The, the, you're not seen to always be doing the right thing for every single kind of stakeholder. So the live issue of it is very, very... But the three things I talked about, being storytelling, judgment, um, in being interested and being curious, um, they they're absolutely come to their fore in a crisis. Could I invite just one or two? Um, I don't need the, the second row, the person. I worked in uh, State Bank of India practically all my life. And um, when we joined as management trainees, I think about 20% of them are women. And uh, right now, of course, we have about 40% in the board level and in the senior levels of the bank. And as you have probably noticed, a lot of chairmen of uh, Indian banks are women. Yes. Yeah. Unlike uh, UK. Yes. I've been in UK for the last 15 years. Uh, looking at the women, both in India, and of course, I also, like you, probably promoted a lot of women, been in boards, uh, judging which person to be promoted, man or woman. And I don't think I ever thought look, I'm going to promote this particular person because it's a woman no. or because it's a man. Or I'm going to post somebody here because there's a woman who will do a better job or a man will do a better job. Who will do a better job? Especially in these days of uh, electronic communications, like you said, solicitor, advocate, accountant, hardly matters who's responding to you from the other end when it's totally contactless. I think the problem in UK, from what I've noticed, is a question of aspiration. Women don't aspire to reach very high posts. I don't know what the problem is. Maybe a problem of culture. Unlike in India, where any girl who joined along with us said, look, what do you want to become when you go to then? I want to become the chairman of the bank. Whether you became chairman of the bank or not is a different issue altogether. But the woman would say, look, I want to become a chairman of the bank. We had, I don't want to give the name of the bank. I worked here, British bank. You hardly found anybody who said, look, I want to become the chairman of this bank. Okay, I think do you basically, have a question? The to question is, yes. basically, I think in UK, the issue is one of aspiration 
that's why we want more and more people more, more gender diversity more talk is given more time is spent on it rather than trying to uh, inspire women to reach higher positions i guess i don't know no, i you know no i um personally i have always worked with women who have huge amounts of personal aspiration huge amounts and it's not because they may not vocalize saying i want to be the chairman of the company but it doesn't mean the aspiration isn't there so i i have not come across i've come across loads of men who've got huge aspirations come loads of men who don't i wouldn't say that i've come across in my career both in the public sector and the private sector women who don't aspire i think they do aspire i think women also think about broader things which is i might need to take a career break because there are certain things that i also want out of life um and that may mean that i have to do a step here and then make a sideways step before i can go further so so i don't think it's about aspiration i think a, a woman may have a whole different dialogue going on in terms of do i want kids do i not want kids um and that's you men as well in terms of caring you know the there's a big thing in this country around caring for elderly parents and relatives and all these things so to me I, i'm not sure it's an aspiration thing but i think there's a whole range of things that you is going through your mind that i think for probably for a man you know you don't have babies yet so you know you you can't have them you don't have to take six months off so you know you don't have to think about those things So I don't know if I'm making sense there but for women I just think there's more that you have to think about so the aspiration is there you just as a there's a broader issues you want to consider about where you want to go Probably uh one last um okay the first row of the women I take that one as well Um oh. <laughs> My name is Dima I'm Palestinian and I'm a student here uh, doing my masters in um management human resources. Um I think you're quite phenomenal <laughs> honestly. Um and I just wanted to ask a question regarding uh work and home relationship. I'm really intrigued by this and I've seen my dad and my mom so um how does your role like you've been in multiple positions and respectable ones as well. So your role and how it has affected your family in light of like gender equality and that you have kids so how does that affect or like your brothers or you know just <laughs> to me it was it's always been really important to um work i've got i had huge aspirations i did have huge aspirations and i really really wanted to work and i you know i wanted a career i absolutely wanted a career and i just felt you know if i was the first girl to have gone to university you know it had been slightly wasteful for me not to try to do something with that um then when i had kids it became even more important for me to work and it's a, again a, a personal decision and everyone makes their own decisions and nobody makes a wrong decision for what's right and wrong for their family but for me i had a daughter first and i just wanted her to see that mummy's work and mummies can also stay at home and there there's no right or wrong answer and so i have always worked i haven't had a career break um i have always worked and 
for me and for my family, it's really important that they have that role model that women work. And um, I think there's a lot of things in the workplace that have become slightly easier in terms of you know, support companies can give, but I think we've still got a long way to go. So if you look at my colleagues in Singapore, um, they have three months maternity leave, whereas in the West we have huge, much, much bigger maternity leaves. They have three months maternity leaves, and it's completely normal, and they want to come back to work. And their home life is such that, as I said earlier, Singapore is a very expensive place to live, so they do want two incomes coming into the household, their husband and themselves. Um, But they have a wonderful uh, family support system where the children are looked after by grandparents or aunts and uncles, and and so they have that ready-made. So they come back after three months to work because they have quite a big kind of home um, environment. Now, I didn't because... I live down here, uh, don't have family down here. My husband's Scottish, his family all live in Scotland. So I pay for childcare. And you sometimes have to make... I made some sacrifices by spending a lot of my salary on that in the early days. But because I didn't want to give up work, I thought that was worth it. And so I fundamentally believe have brilliant childcare. And in the early days of your career... You feel as though, well, so much of it goes out the door. But honestly, in the long run, it's worth it. And you know what? You don't have to... I don't believe you can have it all. I really don't, guys, honestly. I have never in my life baked cakes for school. I can tell you that now. Never. And I can cook. I'm a good cook. I can't bake, but I've never cooked anything for school. And I've never been one of those women or mothers or parents that pretended that she did. So buy something, smash it up a little bit, and then take it into school. I'm very proud to say, oh, Uncle Marks and Spencer's or Auntie Morrison's made this one, you know, and we take them in. Um, and, and sometimes you just got to get used to not always being there and actually be quite comfortable with that and not beat yourself over the head. So I can't make every single school concert because in my current job I travel quite a lot. I make all the ones I can... But I've had to just, just kind of reconcile myself that that doesn't make me a bad parent because there's loads of other things that I do probably that are amazing. My children don't tell me what they are, but I'm sure there are. Um, so I think you don't have to be perfect in everything that you do. The phrase I've learned the majority since I became a parent is let it go. Yasmin, there are certain things you just can't control, so let them go, and there are other things that you can have control over and do something about those. Thank you. If there is any quick one, we can squeeze probably one more. Um, The person in the middle, the right? Yes. Um, Hi, my name's Emily, and I'm a recent graduate. Um, My question is basically to do with career trajectories. Um, so I think there's an understanding now that millennials will kind of change career a lot. Yeah. Um, and as someone who says they've kept their spine in communications but has changed sector, I think, and this might be wrong, but I think there's an understanding that people either can change discipline or change sector. Um, and as someone who also seems to champion diverse talent as bringing in diverse thinking. And we've kind of looked at gender and also kind of ethnicity, um, and we haven't really touched on accessibility, but that kind of comes into it. And I sort of wonder what happens with someone who wants to change both discipline and sector um, 
and how that relates to kind of ageism, especially. Because if, obviously if you're kind of early on into your career, it's like, oh, done this, kind of gained some skills, gained some experience, networked, and now I want to look at this. But actually what happens when you are however far down the line and suddenly it's like, okay, I want to change my discipline, I want to change my sector, because obviously there are unconscious biases to do with that. Yeah. And I suppose my question is especially to do with women who are returning to the workforce after taking time off for having kids. Um, and I suppose what are your thoughts on that and is that something that's ever really likely to change and how we can kind of approach implementing that change? I think it's a brilliant question to end on. Um, it's becoming uh, more and more of an issue because if you just think of some things around legislation where you know, the um, retirement ages increase, so you're going to get people working you know, much longer into, um, into, into their age, into their 60s. Um, and I absolutely think um, portfolio careers where you, know, you, you do different things is becoming more and more uh, common. I think for me, the biggest thing is that it's been having the confidence to, to make the jump into the unknown. So if I suddenly said, I want to retrain as an accountant, which I wouldn't, but if I did, that would be you know, quite, a, quite a big jump. And so for me, it's looking at adjacencies and what things, um, you know, I talked about attributes, the attributes, the skill set, and the adjacencies, and, and therefore where could you move into that wouldn't be such a big shock that the, for you, but the industry you're going into could actually say, oh, yeah, I can see how that works. I think it's a lot easier earlier on in your career to jump around and get all of those experiences that you can. But you know what? We are our own worst enemies. We put ourselves in little boxes. You know, I, I am, you know, I'm an accountant and I'm a, a medic and I'm a communications professional. Um, so a lot of it is our own mindset. But I think it's going to become more and more uh, common. So my advice would be, look at adjacencies than complete unknowns and really be brutal about your skill set and what makes you tick and what really doesn't make you tick and never go into something that doesn't make you tick. You will be miserable and you probably won't be very good at it. So adjacencies, look at the skill set, look at the attributes and really, in, and really investigate the environments you want to work in and the values of the companies that you're looking at. You spend a long time at work. Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, it was a great pleasure for me and for all of you uh, to have an opportunity to listen to Yasmin. Um, and thank you very much, Yasmin, for you know, coming. coming. <laughs> okay, then thank you and good night. <laughs>